Philip Pond has needed a well-protected place to stash his collection of rare watches. He had been gathering unusual pieces since he was a teenager, and he became internationally uh, he became an internationally known expert in the history and restoration of high-end timepieces. At first, he kept his personal collection in a box in his house, <laughs> but he wanted something a little more secure, naturally, right? So he th- thought that the vault at his neighborhood bank seemed ideal. And in 1983, he arranged with his bank to rent a safe deposit box. The, the, it was protected by two keys. There were hundreds of stacked metal boxes in the vault. The one key the bank kept and the other key the customer held. Both were required to open the box. Then came the time, April 2017. He's so excited to see his collection. He opens the box and guess what? Empty. Absolutely empty. He said, I thought my heart would fail at that moment. I was absolutely devastated. I never felt like that in my life before. As a matter of fact, he says, I've never felt, he says, I've never known that anyone could have a feeling like I felt when I opened up that box and it was empty. There are an estimated 25 million safe deposit boxes in America, and guess what? They're not insured. There is no insurance, there is no requirement or federal law governing those boxes. No rules that require the banks to compensate customers if the property is stolen or destroyed. If you guys rush out of here right now and go get your boxes, I I would completely understand. I did not know that. Every year, a few hundred customers report that these valuable items, diamonds, jewelry, rare coins, stacks of cash, have disappeared from their boxes, and they're not reimbursed. He began to piece together what had happened, so they evicted his neighbor box. And guess what? Gave him the wrong one. The neighbor got the box, and it estimated the loss was more than $10 million in rare watches. It is actually the biggest safe deposit box lost, loss in history. He said he thought when you were putting these things in there, they were safe and secure like Fort Knox. I didn't think so. He says, I don't think that anymore. I was in a bank the other day, and I was, I, I was there early, and I was actually watching the lady open the vault. And those vaults are huge. And she had it written down on a piece of paper, which I was a little skeptical. I didn't watch for long because I didn't want anyone coming in and thinking I was about to rob the, rob the bank. But she's opening the vault and I'm thinking, that's a huge, and she has to pull back in this huge vault. And you would think, you know, you got the vault, you got the two keys, you got the safe deposit box. You think it's what? Safe and sound. Think again. Think again. Folks, what is it that guarantees our security in our salvation. How can you and I be absolutely certain? How can we be sure that that which we have entrusted to Jesus Christ is going to be kept safe for our time when we get to heaven? Matter of fact, Paul says that, doesn't he? 
What does Paul know? He is absolutely convinced of something. He is convinced that he is able to guard that which he has entrusted to him until that day. How can you and I have that conviction? Well, we're going to talk about that today. Because I want you to leave here. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to leave here being able to say that. I want you to leave here today knowing that what you have given him, what you have trusted in him is absolutely safe and secure. Nothing is going to happen to it. Nothing is going to happen to you. You are going to be with Christ in heaven. It's as good as done. It's not two keys. It's actually three keys that we're going to be looking at in this passage today. The first key, and the, it, these reflect his prayer. All revolving around Jesus' prayer. And the first key to that prayer is the relational basis of it. And the, the key to our security is the relational basis that he has with you and I and with his Father in heaven. Verses 9 and 10, John chapter 17. He says this, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. So Jesus is establishing who he's praying for, the relational basis of his prayer, and who he's identifying the disciples in this relationship that we have with Christ and also God the Father. When Harry Truman became president, he worried about losing touch with common everyday Americans, so he would often go out to be among them. Those, it was simpler in those days when the president could take a walk by himself. So one evening, Truman decided to take a walk down to the Memorial Bridge on the Potomac River, and he grew curious about a mechanism that raised and lowered the bridge. So he made his way across the catwalks and came upon the bridge tender. He seized the bridge tender. When he saw the man, the man, the man showed absolutely no surprise when he looked up and saw the most best known and most powerful man in the world. He was eating his dinner and he just swallowed his food, wiped his mouth, and he said this. He said, you know, Mr. President, I was just thinking about you. According to Truman's biographer, David McCullough, it was that greeting that Truman adored and never forgot. Have you ever contacted someone, maybe you ran into them, a friend, someone from church, or maybe you emailed them or texted them, called them, and they said to you, I was just thinking about you, or better, they said to you, I was just praying for you, or I, I have been praying for you. How'd that make you feel? It just feel pretty good, doesn't it? And, and the reason for that is because what? They know you, don't they? They're in a relationship with you. As a matter of fact, someone actually said that to me the other day, and I took it with me the entire day, and it kind of just encouraged me throughout the entire day. What is Jesus saying here? 
What's he doing? He's praying for us. Jesus Christ is interceding on our behalf. He's interceding for you. And that intercession that Jesus is doing here is an example of what he continues to do before the Father in heaven today. Jesus is thinking about us. Jesus is praying for us. And he identifies us very, very specifically. He lets us know he's not praying for everybody, is he? He's not praying for the world, even though he loves the world. He is praying for his disciples, and he is praying for you and I, because later on he's going to say, and I ask not just on their behalf, but on the behalf of, of all of those who are going to believe through their witness. That's you and me here today. I think we don't think a lot about this aspect of intercession. And I think we don't think a lot about the fact that Jesus is thinking about us, that God is thinking about us, and He's thinking about us specifically. And Jesus right now is in heaven constantly interceding for us. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 7.25 says this, He lives to make intercession for us. And the end result of that intercession is what? What does he say in Hebrews 7.25? Therefore, he is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to do what? Intercede for them. A lot of people think that the intercession is just Jesus kind of his presence being there. And it's, it's got to be more than that. And this is an example of what Jesus is doing in heaven. He is he is requesting on our behalf, and he's praying here for a very specific reason, the one we're going to get to in the next verse. But it's more than just his presence in heaven. And, and we have to understand he's not pleading before a disgruntled God who wants to take us out, and Jesus is like, whoa, 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 I know, I know Joe did this today, but go easy on him, Lord. It's going to be Okay. No, because here we see the relationship between Jesus Christ and God the Father, and it's a relationship of unity. What God wants, Jesus wants, and vice versa. Why? Because that which they have, they share together. So the request that Jesus is making here is the same request that the Father wants as well. He established that we belong to Him and we belong to God, and we do not belong to the world. And therefore, that is the relational basis for the prayer that he is going to make. But the intercession, as one commentator says, may be considered just not merely an act due to the nature of his person, but it's an active presentation in some form of the needs of believers on earth. The conclusion, therefore, is that the intercession of Christ is real. It's more than just his presence. It may be vocal but not necessarily, and it involves active communication between the Son and the Father. And we know that the Spirit prays for us too, don't we? So all three are involved. All three are involved in making sure our needs are met and making sure that you and I are safe and sound here on earth. All three. I don't know about you, but when... There are certain people who say when they're praying for me, I'm always a little bit happier 
because I think they're more godly. So there are certain people that tell me, I'm praying for you, and I'm like, all right, Lord, I'm all good. So-and-so is praying for me. I know their prayer is heard. And I sh- that's bad theology, though. That's really not true. But there are certain people who will tell me that, and I'm just like, oh, wow, I can, I can walk outside the door today because so-and-so is praying for me. If that's the case with sinful human beings and we think that, how much more if Jesus Christ is praying for us? We pray for those we know. We pray for those we, we love and we care about that we're in a relationship with. And Jesus here is making this request on our behalf because of the very, very special relationship that we have with Him and His Father. We belong to God. We belong to Jesus Christ. Therefore, He's going to make sure that we're well taken care of. And that intercession continues today. But notice what else, how else He describes this group of individuals. What does He say? And I have been glorified in them. We may be like, well, what are you talking The disciples who are about to scatter and Peter is about to deny Jesus Christ to a servant girl, Jesus qualifies them as individuals in which He has been glorified. You know, my daughter's turning 18 this week, and, and I got to tell you something. I am absolutely so proud to be this girl's father. She has brought me honor, joy, and pride. And Jesus says something similar here that I don't think we often consider. But as a commentator says, to put it in more contemporary terms, the disciples and you and I, whatever our shortcomings are His pride and joy as He is the Father's pride and joy. Why? Because they are glorifying Him in the fact that they are living proof of His completed work. So we're going to mess up. We're not going to get it right. But guess what? The fact that you and I are here trusting in Jesus Christ, that glorifies Him alone. And He's, he's joyed by that. He, he loves us. It's a special relationship. And we don't often think of ourselves in that fashion, but that's how He describes the disciples. That's how He describes us. He's glorified in us. And these guys are about to mess up royally, aren't they? Wow. He's thinking of us. He's praying for us. We belong to Him. We belong to God. And He's glorified in us. That's the relational basis. And here He then gives the very, very specific request of the prayer, which is for protection. So the pre- protective, pr- pr- protective petition, verse 11. Too many Ps. He says this, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. It 
This is the blue-ringed octopus. It's cute, isn't it? Blue-ringed octopus is found in tide pools and coral reefs in the Pacific and Indian Oceans from Japan to Australia. They have very effective camouflage, and they spend most of their times in cracks and crevices. They only grow to about five to eight inches. They're tiny little creatures. And they only live three to five years. So they're camouflaged, hiding in cracks and crevices, three to five years, five to eight inches, and they're cute. So because they're cute, people, maybe you're disagreeing, I think they're cute. Because they're cute, some people like to pick them up. Oh, there's one more thing I forgot. They have enough venom to kill 26 adults with one single bite. This lady didn't know that. There she is. She went viral on TikTok having picked up this blue ring octopus unknowingly holding one of the most venomous marine animals in the world. The second screenshot describes the animal, again, telling people how much venom it has and often saying and says that the bites are tiny and often painless, which result in victims not realizing that they have been bitten until respiratory depression and paralysis begins. And she writes, cheers for being alive. As soon as she posted it, and then people are like, dude, you could have died. And then she called her father, bawling her eyes out. Yet, they are in the world, and the world is what? An extremely dangerous place. And without the protection of our father, guess what? You and I are absolutely done for. It's almost ominous what he's saying here. We're sent off. So she was, this girl was studying in Bali. She was in a foreign place. So we're, we're sent off to be in the world, but where's Jesus? I am no longer with them. I am no longer in the world, yet they are in the world. What is the world full of? The world is full of darkness. The world is full of rebellion. The world is full of temptation. And the world is full of people who want to stop us and paralyze us in our faith. So because of that, we need the protection of a holy father. It's a very dangerous place for Christians. We do not know the dangers that we will face. We do not know sometimes the ones that we have faced until afterwards. Folks, I, I don't think that we, we think about this enough. And I know that I don't. What does Jesus establish here? A conflict. An ongoing battle between us and the world. A, a danger in this world for us. Every day that we wake up, there's an active campaign against you and me in the faith. There's an active campaign. We have three fronts that we fight on constantly. The flesh, always tempting us and 
wanting us to disobey, wanting us to fulfill our own, those desires, those sinful desires, the sinful nature. We have the world, and I don't think I need to give any, any examples of this world that is trying to get us to do what? Get us out of His name, to remove us from the faith, to stop us from being faithful, to stop us from preaching the gospel. And then there's Satan, who's like a what? A lion waiting to do what? Pounce on us. And we wake up, we're like, oh, it's good to go. It's going to be great. It's going to be a great day today. And and I'm not saying we want to be nervous or anything like that, but I, I I don't think about it like that. There's an active campaign against us. That's why Jesus's prayer, if all the things that he prays for is for what? For us to remain in the faith. Therefore, the prayer represents the battle. Stay in the faith. And you and I could not stay in the faith apart from God's protection. It's impossible. We'd all be picking up poisonous octopi everywhere. But it's a reality that I don't think we think about. He could have prayed for anything. What does he pray? Keep them. Hold them in your name. Keep them there. Because they're in the world. I've completed my mission is what he's saying. Theirs is just starting. And it's a long and hard one. And if we're we're knowing this, then when things happen, it's going to make more sense. And when we see the temptations, we're going to be able to fight it all the more. When he says, Holy Father, he says that for a reason. Why? Because we're in an evil world. And only a holy, righteous, almighty, powerful God can keep us in the faith as we walk through this dark, rebellious world. Only he can do it. There are two, two ways you could have looked at in his name, or you maybe I think the NIV has by his name. I don't think the NIV translation is correct in that. I don't think he means by his name. So by his name would mean by the power of his name or the character of his name, which I think that definitely comes into play. But he, I, I think of after everything that Jesus was saying, before and what he's going to say after, it's in the location of his name. So ultimately, that he, he, he wants us to be kept faithful, that you and I are kept in faithful, continual allegiance to the truth and revelation of God's character, the gospel, through Jesus Christ. Faithfulness to the gospel or keeping the word As he said earlier, right? They kept your word. Why? Because they're being kept in your word. They're being kept in the message of the truth of the gospel. And it's absolutely important for us to see that God is actively doing this. God is actively keeping us in the faith. He's not passively doing it. I think he means in the location of his name, his revelation in Christ, the character and will. 
So on the grand scale, it's in the faithfulness to the gospel, which is ultimate. That's what we should ultimately be striving for, that we keep the faith. But on another scale, we can come out of His name, so to speak, if we go against His name, if we're sinning, being tempted to, to disobey Him, being tempted, being tempted to, to follow the ways of this world and dishonor His name. And that's what Satan and the world and the flesh all want to do. It's an active campaign. And what's the purpose? That they may be one as you and I are one. Unity. You know, we've been focused on unity here at Galilee. Been trying to do more fellowship together, trying to get together for prayer nights. Notice the two things that Jesus mentions in this prayer. Keeping the faith and what? Unity. Those are the two things that we're going to be targeted most in this world. It's absolutely crucial that we are kept in the faith so that we remain unified and so that we can encourage each other as we go out into this world. You know, I was thinking about this verse, and, and we often think of Christ-likeness as the fruit of the Holy Spirit or any type of personal or individual character, which is right, we should. But I thought about this in relationship to Christ-likeness, and what we see here is being like Christ is being unified with one another. Togetherness. Togetherness in the faith, and, and that reflects the character of the Trinity. Our unity reflects the character of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's Christ-likeness. He says, so that they are one as what? You and I are one. So that they are unified as you and I are completely and utterly unified. And in this culture, that's getting harder and harder to do. There is, there is a danger in this culture, and it is the individualization of the church. We are making it more about me, myself, and I. And that is not what he is saying here. And what happens when we do that is we're willing to leave the body at little silly things. Get upset over little silly things. The things that we should be putting aside and not worrying about and focusing on the main things, because we're so individualized, we're splitting from churches over nothing, over the color of rugs. It's terrible. His point here of keeping us in the faith is so that we stay unified so that we can reflect the character of God. 
And there are three ways that we, 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 we can reflect that unity, because there are ways that we cannot reflect that unity. The first way we reflect that unity is love, isn't it? We can love each other with a sacrificial love, not making ourselves the priority, making the other person the priority, making the church and God's kingdom the priority. How else can we do it? In His holiness. I was just talking to someone the other day and saying that, you know, one of the things that breaks up a fellowship is sin. If someone is sinning and not repenting of that sin, it really harms a church and it harms a fellowship. We have a hard time fellowshipping with one another if someone is sinning and unrepentant of that sin. And how else? Truth. We've been talking about that up until this point. We're unified in the truth, just as God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are unified in the truth. And finally, unified, we can be unified in mission and purpose. You know, it's funny, I heard a story that an atheistic church had a split over theological and practical reasons. If it's hard for an atheistic church to stay together, do you think it's hard for the real church to stay together? Because... I think Satan could care less about the atheistic church. I think he cares more about what? Splitting us up, doesn't he? Folks, Christianity is not an individual faith. It never was, and it never will be. Christianity is lived out in community, a community that encourages one another to hold fast to the truth a community that encourages one another to reflect God's holiness, a community that encourages one another to go out and do His mission that He has called us to do, and a community that encourages one another to continue to preach that gospel. Here is the the prayer that is answered in Jude 1.1. Remember we mentioned that last week. We are those who are kept by God for Jesus Christ. And the same pattern that we saw Jesus give His disciples is exactly what you and I can expect for ourselves. So the protective pattern in verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them, in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus uses two words here for the protection that He gave His disciples while on earth. It's keeping and guarding, guarding or the, the guarding actually sums up His, his total work of keeping them. So the keeping means to retain in custody, to keep watch over, or to guard. And the guarding means to protect or defend by taking careful measures. And these words were used in relationship to prisoners. So as soon as I learned that, I was like, oh, I I completely understand that. Not that I was a prisoner, but that I used to take care of prisoners. And actually, I was the intake officer at Long Creek, so I was the first guard 
that they would see. They were probably like, oh, this is going to be absolutely terrible. No, I'm the, I'm the, I was the face of Long Creek. So when they came in, I was the first one that they saw. Some of them just wanted to turn right around. But my, my whole job was to process them. And we would take in everything that belonged to them. We would search all their stuff. We would bring in their clothes and then we'd put it nice and secure, sometimes in a safe keeping in the back somewhere, and then we'd give them new clothes, and I would ask them a whole bunch of questions, and they be, now were in our custody. It was my job and the job of the other guards that were there to take care of them, to retain them, to keep them safe and secure until we sent them out the door. So, and we would develop relationships with them, naturally. We would know where, where they're their, their tendencies towards bad things were, what they, what they liked, what they disliked. And it was, it was our job to come in day in and day out and just to care for the, the children that were given to us. Sometimes we do a good job, sometimes not so much. But whatever it was, we took care of them. If they were sick, we had to take them up to medical, make sure that they got the medicines that they needed. We had to make sure that they were eating three meals a day. If they got assaulted or attacked, we had to make sure that we would call in other people to help and make sure that they would no harm would come to them. It was our job to care for them. If they wanted to harm themselves, we needed to pay very close attention to them so no harm came to them. And then the day would come, and we would send them off to court, and they'd be free once again, and we could say, guess what? We guarded them. We did our job. It's exactly what Jesus does here. He, may, he makes sure that nothing happens to them. And what is the end result? Because the end result that happens for the disciples is the same end result that's going to happen for you and me. What's the end result? Not one of them perished. This is the shepherd. Every single day of your life, you are under his watchful eye. Do you believe that? Every single day, there's not a step that you take, there's not a moment in your life, not a second goes by where He is not watching you. You are under His protection. The shepherd knows the sheep by name, he knows the trouble that we get into. He knows what's coming down the path, and He is going to faithfully walk ahead of us and bring us home. Not one. Not one. Not one of them perished. Whatever you're facing right now, Whatever you're afraid you're going to face, whatever you faced in the past, He's been walking with you. He continues to walk with you, and He will into the future. The same protection that was given to His disciples and the same success that He had is the same that you and I are going to receive and have received. 
you can be absolutely sure he'll say the same of us. I lost none of them. None of them. It's interesting because the way he says it about Judas reflects Judas's character. Judas is not a son of God. <laughs> Judas is not a son of the light. He's a son of destruction. Later on, John, same author, is going to say something very, very important about those who have left the church. He said, they went out from us, but they went out from us because they were never, never one of us. Yeah, they were around us. They weren't one of us. Why? Because they went out from us. Judas, remember, what did he do? He left. He left Jesus and the disciples, and where did he go? Out into the darkness, out into the night. Who was with Judas? Satan. Who did Judas belong to? Satan. That's why Judas perished. He never belonged to Jesus Christ. Judas made his choice. You and I, we belong to Him. And because you and I belong to Him, we're in His custody. And guess what? This guard, He never slumbers. He never sleeps. He has a watchful eye. And He's going to make sure that we make it all the way home. This is Ira Sankey. He is a gospel, he was a God, he might still be up in heaven. He, he's, he was a gospel writer and a composer. And when he was at the height of his ministry, he was traveling on a, on a steamer in the Delaware River. And he was recognized by some of the passengers. They'd seen his picture in the newspaper and knew he was associated with evangelist D.L. Moody. So they asked him to sing one of his own compositions. However, Sankey said he preferred the hymn by William Bradbury, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. He suggested that everyone join in on the singing. One of the stanzas to that song begins like this, we are thine, do thou befriend us, be the guardian of our way. When he finished, a man stepped out of the shadows and asked him a question. Mr. Sankey, were you in the army? Mr. Sankey said, well, as a matter of fact, yes, I joined up in 1860. Mr. Sankey, did you ever do guard duty at night in Maryland about 1862? Well, as a matter of fact, yes, I, I did do guard duty. Well, Mr. Sankey, I was in the Confederate Army. I saw you one night at Sharpsburg. I had you in the sight of my gun as you stood in the full light of the moon. Just as I was about to pull the trigger, 
you began to sing. It was the same hymn you just sang tonight. I couldn't shoot you. Christ's intercession guarantees our protection. He has a plan and a purpose for us. And until that is absolutely complete, you and I are safe and sound because we are guarded by the guard who never sleeps. His protection and His intercession is only for those who know Him. And He prays to an almighty God, all-powerful God, to keep us in His care. And the same result that happened for His disciples is the same result that happens for you and me. And therefore, I hope each and every single one of us can say this along with Paul, that I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor future, any other power, height or depth, anything in creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't leave here unless you're convinced of this truth. Father, thank you for your keeping power. Apart from it, Lord, we would all be lost. Lord, we know that we are in a constant battle, and I pray that this provides encouragement for that. That we know no matter what happens to us in this world, you are always with us. You never take your eye off us. And Lord, that which we have entrusted to you is safe and secure until that day. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.